Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada and however you have found our podcast we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website www.duncanchurch.com you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email. We send this out once a week. It's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online. Apart from that, there is a give button. So if you're feeling led, you can do that right online through our website. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube. We are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that God's going to do something special in you through today's message. Enjoy. For those of you who know me or have heard me preach during my tenure here at DPC, you likely know or are aware that when I was growing up, I played hockey. Okay, I played hockey competitively until I was about 26, 27, and then I hung up my skates. And all of the years that I played hockey from when I first learned to skate to when I finally like retired, basically, every league, everywhere that I played, my number one coach was always my dad. He was always like, he was always my number one coach. Now, how many of you, and maybe it wasn't a sport, maybe it was something musical, but how many of you had a parent or a family member and something that you were involved in and they were like your number one support, your number one uh, encourager? Show of hands, yeah? So that was me. Now, my dad never actually took a position on the bench, so he was never like actually like coach of the team, but he was always my personal coach. Now, I wish he would have actually been on the bench because then he maybe would have been more distracted by the mistakes of the other players and not caught every single mistake I would make on the ice. But that wasn't the case. He would watch my games like a hawk. And then what would happen is after every single game, we'd be driving home and then we would talk about it. We would talk about how the game went, how, like, was my effort level good? What did I do? I shouldn't have taken that penalty. That was an ongoing conversation that we would be having. Uh, He was like an extra set of eyes. He'd say, you know, in the second period when you went into the corner and you had your back turned, actually, if you fake right and spin out left, you're going to have a lot more open ice. So these are the types of conversations that I would have with my dad on the drive home after a hockey game. And some of these drives were great. And some of these drives would leave me in tears, wishing I'd never play hockey again. Now, it's not that my dad was a bad person. I just took it to heart because I wanted to do really well. So anyways, this is how I grew up and my dad would help coach me and lead me and teach me. And I loved it. And I, I'm, that's something that I really do miss now that I don't play hockey anymore. But sometimes in certain evenings, when we would be driving to the game, my father and I would make uh, little wagers, I guess you could say. And this one time in particular, my team was playing a team from the city of Kamloops. Now, if you do not know where I grew up, it was in a small community called Sycamus. And Sycamus is significantly smaller than Kamloops. 
Now, I don't know how they do it anymore, but back in my days of minor hockey, you basically, your team was decided like what league you were going to be in and what level in that league. It was based off of the size of your community. So Sycamus being the size that it was, we were considered a single A hockey team even though our team was much, much better than that. That's what they ranked us. Kamloops being its size, they were AAA. So they were two leagues higher than us. So we're going to play Kamloops AAA. And right at this point in time, in hockey history, uh, the company Nike had just started creating hockey equipment. And they had a new stick. And I wanted it so bad. So I told my dad, I said, okay, we're playing Kamloops AAA. Dad, if I get a hat trick, that's three goals. I said, Dad, if I get a hat trick in today's game, you're buying me that new Nike stick. So we make this deal. And we go and play. And wouldn't you know it, I get the three goals that I need. In fact, I actually added one more just as an insurance marker. So I'm pumped. I actually remember looking up in the stands and like the parents from our team knew. And they're just like jeering and elbowing my dad. So anyways... I'm after the game. I get undressed as fast as I can because this is going to be a great ride home in our GMC Safari van. Like, I am so pumped. But wouldn't you know, I never would end up getting that particular Nike hockey stick because my dad would inform me that the deal was for three goals, not four. <laughs> there was a loophole. I didn't, I should have stopped. I should, enough is enough. I should have just quit then. But okay, that sounds, I told my dad, I'm like, you better watch the sermon because I'm going to throw you under the bus early. Um, he is an amazing man and we laugh about that. And if you know nothing about hockey players, I will add this. I wasn't discouraged. I wasn't disheartened because I was way too pumped up about the game that I just had to be sad about that hockey stick. Also, another thing you might not know, when it comes to their equipment and their kind of pregame routines, hockey players are creatures of habit, if not borderline on superstition. So trust me, I was not about to change hockey sticks after the game that I just had. So it wasn't that sad at all. But why do I talk about all this? Well, just because I love hockey. No. I mention all this because I want to know, have you guys ever had something, wanted something, been promised something, been told something was coming? Has there ever been something in your life that you wanted and then you found yourself in a kind of holding pattern waiting for it? Have you ever, yeah, I see, I see those hands. I love it. every hand should be up. I don't even know what you're waiting for, but he put up two hands, okay? So I want to know, has there ever been something that you have been waiting for and you found yourself stuck in the in-between? Stuck awaiting the arrival of that thing that you long for? Because here's the problem. We don't like the in-between, if we're honest. We don't like, maybe, am I the only honest one? I don't like the in-between. I want my good things and I want them now. And I think we're all the same, right? Like, look at us. We want our food fast. We want our internet fast. We want delivery same day, right? We want our dream jobs now, our dream homes tomorrow. And if we're going to lose weight, we want it gone today. 
We want good things, and we want them fast. We want them now. Even, even when we watch movies, we like our movies fast and furious. <laughs> even if it's predictable, right? Even if it becomes so outlandish, it's laughable. We still like them, and I actually only bring that up, really, because my wife and I have recently decided to rewatch all, what, 37? I don't know. How many do they have? So we've been watching through the Fast and the Furious franchise recently. But what I'm getting at is that perhaps right now you feel, I don't know, but perhaps right now you feel like you are in that place, in that in between. And what we're going to find out as we go back into our sermon series in the book of Hebrews this morning is that the original recipients of this letter the person that our author is writing to, the people group, they in a way feel like they're in this in-between, in this waiting pattern, in this, in this place where they are uh, expecting and unsure and maybe growing impatient. So if that's you this morning, the sermon is for you. They are stuck and they are waiting. So, a little quick recap, because it's been a couple weeks since we were in Hebrews last. We are in the book of Hebrews, so let's get caught up really quickly on the context of this letter. So first and foremost, as we've covered many, many times, the book of Hebrews, there's a hair, there we go. The book of Hebrews is written by an unknown author, or even some people suggest authors, but it was written to Hebrew people. Now, to us, we would know them more as Jews or Israelite people, but specifically, this book was written to Hebrews who had left Old Testament faith and religion and had embraced Jesus as their Savior. Okay? This is who this letter is written to. But during this transition, during this time, during this season, they are starting to wonder. They're starting to feel like, like something hasn't changed, something hasn't come, something's not giving, you know? We can all probably identify with that feeling. And they're starting to wonder and to kind of toy with the temptation to slide back to the Old Testament faith. See, really, they had walked away from, in some ways, almost a, a very kind of tangible religious experience, right? They had a physical temple that they could go into. They had goats and grain that they could physically take and offer. They had these rituals that they could partake in. It was very hands-on. And now they had parked all that to embrace a uh, faith that just comes in believing in Jesus, this, wouldn't, this couldn't have been an easy road for them to navigate. Not to mention, they were experiencing intense pressure and persecution from fellow Jews who had not embraced Jesus. And so, because of all of this, they have a temptation to go back. They have a temptation to consider that maybe, maybe Jesus isn't the way. Maybe this isn't going to pan out. Maybe this isn't going to lead to the result that we originally were promised. And they have a temptation to go back to the way things were. Now, I think I mentioned this the last time I preached. I said, I really don't think that's any of our temptations, though, at least to go back to Old Testament, right? Like, I don't think anyone in here has thought this week, I just, I really wish I could go back to goat sacrifices and grain offerings, right? Like, that's not our temptation. But I still believe that every single one of us, I think if we're honest, can identify with the atmosphere in this letter, because whether you've walked with Jesus for a short time or you've walked with him your entire life, 
there is a great chance that there has been moments, even if it was just for a pocket second, where those doubts, those wonders, those questions, those fears, and those hesitations have come into your mind, and you've wondered or maybe entertained the thought or been challenged by the temptation to go back to a former way of life. To think, is God really as good as he says he is? Is, Are we actually going to receive the end result that we've been told we are going to receive? I really believe if we're honest, we can all identify with that type of thinking, at least at some point or another in our lives. And so what we're going to do, what we're going to see this morning is our author is going to talk about the reasons why we can and we should not let go of Jesus, not let go of the hope that the Bible lays out for us and tell us why we should remain steadfast in our faith. So the last time we were in Hebrews, uh, Peter preached in chapter 6. And, and chapter 6 is uh, kind of a stern warning, but it's saying, hey, the things that you've been hearing, the things that you've been taught, stay steadfast in them. Continue. Don't fall short. If you were to look at all of chapter 6, I believe, as a whole, it kind of breaks down this. It's like there's kind of a harsh warning slash reality. And then the author goes, hey, but... You've been doing good so far. I want to encourage you to continue on in that. And then where we're going to get to this morning in our passages is he's going to say, and and here's what you should do. Here's how you should do this. Here's how you should live this out, what you should look like, and how you can imitate this type of life as you keep going. The author is going to say to them, I believe, you know, even there's this temptation, there's this threat that you're thinking about going this way, I'm believing better for you. That's what he says. So what I want to read is the transition sentences, all right? So this is what he wrote in chapter 6, and it's really going to connect what Peter covered uh, the last time he preached in Hebrews and flow into where we're going this morning. So just reading quickly, the author of Hebrews writes this, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end. So I love that. He's saying this same diligence. You've been showing diligence. You've been doing good things. You've been persevering thus far. Continue. Keep doing that to the very end, he is saying. So in order to make your hope sure, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. He says we don't want you to become lazy. Lazy, complacent, kind of giving up. If we're honest, we know that can be a very real temptation in that in-between right? When we're in those holding patterns, when we're in those seasons of waiting for what's coming, this can happen. So our author says, I don't want that to happen. I don't want you to backslide. I don't want you to compromise. What you need to do is endure through faith and patience. Now, I got to tell you, I wish it was faith and about a million other words, right? Like, I wish, it, I wish he wrote, and you endure by faith and power, by faith and the miraculous, by, by faith and what strength, right? Like, anything other than patience. But the reality is, is that I don't think there is a word that is more relatable across all time, across all human history, than the word patience, Because as much as we don't like it, it is something we are all going to have to exercise. Waiting is inevitable. 
Waiting in our lives is inevitable. But the big thing is this, and here's what we're going to discover this morning, is that even though waiting is inevitable, how you wait matters. How we choose to spend our time and even our thought lives during our seasons of waiting, it matters. Now, I have to apologize. I kind of really got into rhyming this week while I was writing my sermon. So here's a couple other ways you could maybe put this. Uh, How we wait can activate the floodgate. Okay? Uh, How we wait can estimate the blessing God will generate. These are all true, though. They might rhyme, but they're true. How you wait, and this one is true, and we're going to cover this in the message, how we wait is how we participate. Uh, I had too many words, so bear with me. I'm going to read something. Maybe I could put it this way as well, all right? Through patience, we can demonstrate we trust our God to orchestrate the plans he wants to generate, the blessings he can incubate, the captives he can liberate. It's greater than we estimate. Don't hesitate or hibernate, evacuate, negotiate. Sit back and let him demonstrate the way he wants to operate and marinate and saturate and let his glory radiate. Let the Father demonstrate his love for you won't deviate. So imitate a patient faith. Open up the floodgate. He's right on time. He's never late. And when he shows up, celebrate. How we wait matters. And I'm going to give you a secret. I firmly believe that the key to unlocking the blessings God has for you in your life, the key to walking in the promises of Scripture, is this really sexy word, patience. It is enduring patience. Patience may not be exciting, but it is powerful. This is what we are going to see. And so the Hebrew writer, he's saying this and he's saying, as we just read in the transition, he says, so you need to imitate. You need to imitate someone who's walked out this faith-filled, patient life. And this brings us to our passage this morning. So Hebrews, if you haven't flipped there yet, chapter 6, verse 13. We're going to just do the last number of verses, 13 to 20. Is that seven verses? I suck at math, but so we're going to do that when I'm going to break them down kind of into three chunks this morning. So starting verse 13, 13 to 15, this is what our author now writes. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. So, as we gather, our author says, hey, imitate those who have lived this out, lived out a life of faith and patience. And he chooses Abraham as the example, right? He says, live this out, now look at this guy. And this is a great choice, right? Abraham is, in fact, known as the father of faith. And he's actually not just the father of, like, Christian faith. He's actually the father and uh, a, a central figure for the faith of three prominent religions on earth. So it's Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. He is 
prominent in his faith and belief in all of these. And so the author is trying to point out that in all the things, because these people, remember, they're Hebrews, so they knew the Old Testament. They knew who Abraham was. Of all the things that Abraham accomplished in his life, our author is saying, it came through faithful patience or being patient in faith. It wasn't through sacrifices. It wasn't through laws. It wasn't through religious observations, although those would come, and we're going to touch on one of those this morning. He says it was through faith and patience that Abraham carried on in his life. Now, carried on through what? Well, I'm glad you asked, because we're now going to just do a quick summary of Abraham's life for those of us who may not be aware. So first off, God goes out and he calls Abraham to a land that is unknown. So this man has to agree to travel to he doesn't know where and leave all of his friends and family and his entire life, all that he has ever known. Just because God says, hey, I'm going to give you a piece of land. And he's going to do this at the age of 75 God calls this man at the age of 75. This is a whole sermon all on its own, but maybe some of us need to hear this. I want to make sure we understand the message that is being communicated here. So I want you to say out loud, God's not done with me yet. And now I want you to say it like you actually believe it. God's not done with me yet. Amen. At the age of 75, when all of Abraham's friends are looking for retirement homes, right? They're like, which one's got the best pickleball court and all of these things. This guy gets called on the greatest adventure of his life yet. And before he takes off, though, his dad dies. So he buries his dad, and then he heads off to an unknown land. He doesn't know where this land is. He's going to pack up, move his whole family. Like, Husbands, try this one on with your wives, right? Like, wait until a while from now when she's completely forgot this sermon, and maybe that's like this afternoon. I don't know. But wait until you, like, are suspicious that she doesn't remember, and then go, hey, uh, sweetie, just a heads up. We're moving. I can't tell you where. The truck's coming tomorrow. We got to put all of our stuff in it. I don't know how long we're going to be traveling for. Uh, All I know is that when we get there, we're not going to have a home. I'm not going to have a job. You're not going to have a job. We just need to go. All right? And then let me know how that goes. But despite all this, Abraham, he does. He ups and moves, and then God shows him this land. They get there, and God's like, this is it, Abe. And here's the part that has always got me. Maybe this is just me. I feel like if God was like, hey, Ross, I'm going to give you some land. Want to know how I would picture it? Vacant. <laughs> and, and next to water. But Abraham pulls up, and I can only imagine, like, of all the places that he must have come across on his way there, he must have been like this. Okay, okay, maybe it's in God's, like, silence. And then he gets to a place that is well-occupied, and the Lord's like, this is it. And Abraham, like, now he needs more faith to believe that God is going to do what God has said he's going to do. So God leads him to the land, but it is occupied. Then Uh, Abraham has to trust God through famine, which would have impacted not just his stomach, but his bank account. 
Okay, he deals with issues and drama with his wife. They had had trouble having kids their whole life. Not to mention, he then has to deal with the baby mama that his wife gives to him, right? Because she's like, I can't have kids, have this lady. And now he's got a, a child with her. He's dealing with all these issues. He's got drama with his uh, nephew Lot. Okay, he's got family disputes he's got to trust God through. He actually goes into war with kings. He fights at one time, not one king, but three from the surrounding area. So he has to trust God and have faith for that. Then, in my opinion, if this act alone was the only record we have from Abraham's life, and we know that he did as God commanded, it would still place this man, one act alone, in absolute legend status for a man of faith. Because at the age of 99, he does something and obeys God in a way that I think not very many men would do. Because he follows God's instructions to observe circumcision at the age of 99, okay? Like this guy is faithful to the Lord. Then at 100, he finally has a child. Then his wife can have kids, so he trusts God to be able to help her have more children. Then his first wife passes away and he has to deal with the loss. And he endures through all of this, through faith and patience. And as a result, he would come to see the fruition of the promises that God had for him and for his family. Now, our passage in Hebrews quickly quoted the promise, kind of summarized it, but the original one is found in Genesis 22:16, and I'll just read it for you. It's when God said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand and the seashore. Your descendants will take possession in the cities of their enemies and through your offspring. All nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. These are the promises that Abraham would receive. Now, ultimately, we know that the fulfillment of all of them in their fullness would not happen until Jesus' death and resurrection. But still, Abraham would see the land that they were going to inherit he would see his family gain success and riches while during very, very difficult times, he would have numerous kids and would live long enough to see his grandchildren. He would see the fruition of these promises from God. And this is the man whose life of steady, patient faith in the Lord is one that we should imitate and one that we're going to see we can trust. Moving on in our passage this morning, verses 16 to 18. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. How many of you have ever sworn an oath? Oh, see, I said an oath, but I saw hands go up. Um, how many of you have ever sworn an oath? Yeah, you've, you've sworn an oath, you've taken an oath. Yeah, I have. Uh, I had to do a, what is a cross-examination for like a legal thing. And so I had to make an oath, right, that I was going to be truthful and honest when I did that. Uh, also, 
during my marriage ceremony to my wife. I made an oath to her and to God that I would love her all of the days of my life. So I have made oaths before, but maybe you haven't made an oath, but have you ever in your life uh, been telling someone a story, right? Maybe friends and a true one, a true story that your friends are like, no way. And you're like, no, I swear, right? You're like, you're trying to bring like validity to what you're saying because it seems almost like unthinkable. I've, I've had to do this before with a number of different stories, but one in particular is when I tell people that I was, and I swear this is true, I was stuck upside down on a roller coaster that broke while I was on it. Yeah, like I don't ever need to go back to Six Flags. Because like here's the thing, like we actually, that was the first ride me and my buddies went on that day and the only one. Because we got off, and I looked at them, and I said, okay, in my opinion, boys, uh, we come here to get an absolute adrenaline rush. It's not getting topped. Like, we have peaked adrenaline, so let's just go, like, surfing or something. And we left. We just left. So, anyways, I, I was. I was stuck upside down on a roller coaster. So, maybe you've had to do that, like, trying to, like, drive home a point, right? And I'm sure we've all seen on TV different characters, like, oh, I swear on the so-and-so, you know, whatever. So people do these things. They, they swear these oaths, and they do it because they're trying to drive home, and they're trying to, like, put an exclamation point on the fact that they are, hopefully, being truthful. And they're also trying to bring extra weight into it, right? That's why you, like, would swear on the Bible when you're in court. You're trying to say, hey, God is my witness. I promise I am being honest and truthful. It is a solemn promise of your honesty. And what our author is pointing out is that when God goes and gives these promises to Abraham, as if God speaking isn't good enough, he puts an exclamation point on it by saying, I swear by my own name, by me, by who I am, that these promises are going to come true. He did this so that there would be no question for Abraham. And as our verse says, those who would inherit these promises would know when God says something, he means it. He's trying to drive home this reality that he is being truthful. Then our passage says that God does this through two unchangeable things. And that's through his unchangeable nature and his unchangeable purpose. God's nature and God's purpose does not, has not, and will not change. We need to know this. His purpose never shifts. I don't know about you, but have you ever set your mind on a goal or a task or an objective or even had like a thing to do and then wavered on it? Time has passed. You got lazy. You changed your mind or you just never in general got around to doing it. Wives, do not elbow your husbands. This is not the time to be like, yeah, remember that shelf, that bookshelf you're supposed to build a couple weeks ago? God doesn't function like that. See, we waver. We, we get frustrated. We can change our minds because we are human-created beings who are subject to time. God does not do that. He doesn't. Now, the reason he doesn't change isn't just because he's got like a really committed personality. The reason he doesn't change is because who he is is who he's always been and who he's always going to be. When we think about 
who God is, the word of God, uh, the character of God. I know this may not be easy, but we need to break away and step outside of our human chronological mindset thinking. Okay? We need to put away our calendars, put away our clocks, put away our egg timers. God exists outside of time. Who he was, he is. Who he is, he was. Perhaps I could explain it this way. Uh, A.W. Tozer says this, All that God is, he's always been. All that he has been and is, he will ever be. Nothing that God has ever said about himself will be modified. Nothing the inspired prophets and apostles have said about him will be rescinded. Whatever God felt about anything, he still feels. Whatever he thought about anyone, he still thinks. Whatever he approved, he still approves. Whatever he condemned, he still condemns. That can be overwhelming, but do you want to know what that means for us? Do you want to know the truth and the reality of what this is saying for us right now? It is saying that any single thing that the scriptures tell us about God, even the things from the Old Testament that talk about his character from thousands of years ago, they are as real and true today right now for you and for me as they were for Abraham. Our God does not change. This is something that should excite us. Yes, some of the promises in the Old Testament, they were for certain people, right? Like I know, Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, give you hope in the future, and when you search, seek for me with all your heart, I will be found by you. I get it, that was written specifically for the exiles, for the Israel, Israelites who were exiled at that time, but do not for one second think that the character of our God and that his heart for his people has changed from them to you. It hasn't. This is who our God was and who our God is. This is part of the reason why do you think the Bible is referred to as living and active? Because it, it, it's as if it's still being spoke to you right now, written just for you, whispered into your heart because it is. That's why at times when you pick up God's word and you've had those moments where it's like, it's jumping off the page. It's like he's whispering it to my heart as if I'm the first person he's ever spoken to. It's because our God is the same and he is whispering it just to you. Our God does not change. His word, the Bible is not a collection of quotes. His word is as real and true and should be washing over us like a live broadcast speaking over the calamity in our lives right now. Our God does not change. Uh, I want to share something with you that a teacher showed me when I was at Bible college, and despite all my head injuries, I never forgot this. Um, now, your timeline of... Uh, major earth human events may differ than mine. Uh, September 5th, 1986 had to be on there though for me because that was a big day. I was born. Um, so that's on there and then you can say you are here. But like creation to question mark, we think and live in that line, right? And God sits outside of it. Looking at all of it for all time. I hope you guys can just see and get a picture in your mind from this little diagram that our God remains the same. That's why he introduces himself as, I am that I am. 
Like, I am. I am that I am. I'm the same for Abraham, for Moses, as I am for Ross and Connor. Our God remains the same. What the Bible says about God wasn't written down thousands of years ago and was only true in that moment. Who God is, what he's about, the promises he's made, they are coming to us real time right now because his character and his nature, like this verse says, does not change. That's the point of this uh, message in Hebrews right now. It's this reminder that we should look at Abraham, look at anyone in Scripture that God said, hey, I'm going to use that person, and then he does so, and cling to that with our faith, knowing that our God can do it again. We can make those stories and the testimony of our king anchors for our lives. As this verse says, it says, we who have had fled take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We should be greatly encouraged, those of us who have fled. Now, I think uh, this can have a couple meanings. Those of us who have fled, I think it can just simply be referring to, and it does, just the fleeing from a former way of life to life and the hope we have in Jesus. But for the original readers, and, and many Bible commentators that I read believe this as well, that that sense, this wording by saying, you know, those of us who have fled can be encouraged, they think it was referring to what was a common Old Testament practice. You see, in the Old Testament, uh, if someone, if you uh, were convicted or thought to have accidentally killed someone, so involuntary manslaughter, you could run to a place called a city of refuge where you would be safe. Now, here's the thing. You had to remain in that city of refuge until one thing happened, the death of the high priest. And then you would, be ha then you would have your freedom again. This is what scholars say this might be referencing to and is hinting at in these verses. And can you guys see the picture, though, here? Like the, the correlation? Because here's the truth. We may not have went out and done it intentionally, but our sins killed a man. We are guilty. We put Jesus on the cross. Our sins were deserving of death, and he got on that cross on our behalf. We are guilty of that. But then he comes. He becomes our refuge. He is our city of refuge, our safe place. But then he goes before us. He fights the battle. He wins. He dies on the cross. He forgives all of our sins, and he sets us free. This is what the scholars say this verse is talking about. Finishing up our verses this morning, going to verses 19 and 20 in Hebrews chapter 6. We have this hope as an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What is the ultimate hope that our souls should be anchored to? Well, first and foremost, it should be the fact that our God does not change. Our God is not wavering. Our God does not change. And that Jesus has paved the way. That our gift of eternal life has come. It has been given to us. And we can walk into that right now because Jesus went before us, went behind that curtain, invites us in, creates a place for us in the place that is known as the Holy of Holies where God's Spirit rested among his people. 
These are the things we should anchor our lives to that we can trust as an absolute and an unchanging. The Bible says, well, my Bible specifically, uh, it says, it uses the word that Jesus went before us in that verse. It says Jesus went before us. Now, a lot of other Bibles, though, they'll say that Jesus was our forerunner. Anyone's Bible say that he is the forerunner? Yeah? So here's the thing. I found out this week that uh, the actual word that they were using there in the Greek was prodomos, or the way the Google lady said, prodomos. So that word prodomos, it means forerunner. So like the most direct word you could translate would be forerunner. However, I also discovered that in Greek specifically, there's a double meaning to that word because the Greeks used it as a military term. And the prodomos was known as a small cavalry that would go out ahead of the rest of the army and do like little scouting and recon missions and then come and report back. And Jesus was the greater prodomos in that not only did he go out ahead of us, he just went out and won the whole battle, didn't he? There's another story that I read about a forerunner and it really stuck out to me this week. And it was about this, one of the uh, kind of original settlers who had landed in what they now know to be the state of Kentucky. And so he was exploring and he was blazing trails and he was, you know, going through and making crude trails that he could kind of journey as he was trying to find a place where they could settle. And so he did this. And as he was creating these paths, he was a forerunner. Then he went back, he gathered a smaller band, and they went out. And they are essentially forerunners. And when they went out, their goal and mission was to create a clearer path for others to journey down. Then they went back, and they got more and more people. And essentially, in theory, everyone who would then travel down this road, making it clearer, making it wider, making it easier to travel, easier to navigate, for anyone who came behind them, they were forerunners. And the reason this stood out to me this week is because is that not what the church should be? Is that not what we should be doing? Not muddying the waters, not making it more confusing. I believe that was one of Jesus' harshest critiques for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says, you shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. We should be creating as clear a path as possible so that those who come behind us, as we are forerunners walking on the firm foundation of the gospel, can look and see Jesus more clearly in our lives and in our community. So how do we do that? How do we live out this life? Well, I'm going to share that with you. How do we fight to have this enduring, patient faith that is similar to what Abraham has? Well, I've created a seven-step program. And because I told you I had a problem this week, I made them all rhyme. But they're no less true. So, seven steps I believe we can embrace in our lives to walk confidently and what I would say, wait well. Because we know waiting matters. So here's how we can wait well. Number one, activate. How do you activate your faith? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes through the word of God. You want to activate your faith, you pick up the Bible and you read it. Get 
into God's word and start reading it to start activating your faith. And once you're in God's word, the next thing you need to do is you need to saturate. You need to saturate yourself in the word of God. You need to let it wash over you. You need to soak in it. If you want to grow faith, you need to water it with the word. If you want to grow faith, you need to water it with the word. While you saturate, you should also be praying. You should also be worshiping. You should surround yourself with people, with friends, with family who are going to encourage you, walk alongside you, and speak faith, truth, and life over you. The next thing we can do is imitate. Just like this verse says, imitate what we see laid out in Scripture. Imitate that patient faith that we read about of those who endure. Then another thing that can be huge for us is commemorate. One of the biggest things for me in my seasons where I have been waiting and it's been difficult has always been for me to reflect on what God has done in the past. To reflect on moments in the Bible where people had to wait and God pulled through and even moments in my own life where I sat in darkness and wondered if he was ever going to surface and he always has. Commemorate and remember what God has done. And when we do these things in a continual cycle, you know what's going to happen? We're going to terminate. We're going to terminate the lies of the enemy. All those questions, all those doubts, all those fears, we can put them subject to the word of God. And while we continually do these things, what we do is we just patiently wait, knowing with faith that that floodgate's going to open. And when he does, we got to celebrate. Celebrate what he has done in our lives. I'm going to get ready to wrap things up. But before I do, I want to read one more final point uh, from A.W. Tozer. He says this, What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'm going to say that one more time. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We wonder why we don't have faith. The answer is faith is confidence in the character of God. And if we don't know what kind of God God is, we can't have faith. Essentially, this is somewhat summarizing this whole process of waiting well and having patient faith. Because I firmly believe that the better you know who God is, the more certain you are about his character as uh, discovered and revealed in Scripture, the better you know that, the more likely you are to hold on, to have enduring faith, to wait, to be patient, and to be confident that he is not a liar and that what he says will be done will be done. We need to know who our king is. It doesn't mean we're going to do it all flawlessly. You know, I want to share one little quick aspect about Abraham that I discovered this week that I found really personally encouraging. And it takes place actually back in Exodus chapter 15. Now, uh, at, in Exodus chapter 15, God's speaking to Abraham. And I believe this is the third time God is reaffirming these promises that he has for Abraham. The third time, okay? And Abraham says to the Lord this, Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? 
after the Lord reminding him three times. And get this, Abraham asks this question, I, I think it's maybe two verses after Scripture writes this. Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Even after this, Abraham goes, Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Do you know what this is communicating, guys? It is communicating that God understands you're going to go through those times where you waver, where you wonder, where you worry, where fear creeps up, where you face challenges and doubts, but he is not intimidated by them. He is aware of our humanity, and he's not scared of it. He is patient with us. As we are called to be patient with him, he is being patient with us during these times where we're trying to grow. But what we can do is we have the opportunity that when those thoughts and questions come, to combat them with the truth of the word. See, because doubts and questions and worries and wonders are exactly like temptation. I'm sure you've all been told it's not a sin to be tempted, right? It's not. It's not a sin to be tempted. The sin comes when you choose what you're going to do with that temptation. And it is the same thing with worries and doubts and fears. It's not a a sin when they enter your mind. It's what are you going to do when they enter your mind? Because in my opinion, we have two choices. We can either... We can either weigh those fears and those doubts and those questions against the truth of God's word... Or we're going to weigh God's word against the truth or the lie of those fears. Those are our two options. So what are we going to do? Even when the doubts and and the fear and all of these come, we can have an anchor in our lives. Because when our lives are anchored to Jesus, that's when hope floats. Do you guys know, I, and I literally, I knew in theory, but I looked it up. I was like, what, is, what's, what does an anchor do? Right? I knew. I wasn't like, I grew up in the lake. I know what an anchor does. But I was like, I wanted to see the exact definition. And I loved this. I love this. This is what an anchor does out in the ocean, out in the lake. This is what God, our anchor, does and should do and can do in our lives. It says this, that an anchor is there to keep a vessel in its place so that when, this isn't if, so that when it is faced with winds, waves, and currents, the vessel will not move off of its course. God has set us on a course. His scripture has revealed to us. He has promises in store for those who follow him. And he wants us to anchor our lives on the truth of what he has said so we do not drift off of that course. This is how we wait well. Unfortunately, I know that all of this doesn't, I, guys, I, lo- I would love to. I wish I could. I wish I could get up here and be like, and here's your timeline, and here's your timeline, and it's going to be three months for your breakthrough, and it's going to be eight months for yours. Like, I wish I could do that, but I can't. I can't do that. I can't give you a countdown clock to when whatever it is you're waiting for is going to come. I also don't even know what it is you're waiting for. I don't know. Maybe it's a job change. Maybe it's financial freedom. Maybe it's freedom for someone in your life. Maybe it's freedom from addiction. I do not know when it's going to end or what it is that you're dealing with, but here is what I do know absolutely concretely without a doubt in my mind. It is that the God of Abraham and Moses and Jacob is the same God in your life today. 
that he is not a liar and that if you can anchor your life on the reality that he is never changing, that he is for you, not against you, you are going to get there one day. I have been in those seasons. I remember distinctly a season in my life where all I could do every single morning is wake up. And I would say this to myself every single morning, Lord, I don't know when, I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, but your word tells me that one is coming. It might be today, it might be next week, it might be 10 years from now, but God, here's what I know, it's coming, and today I'm one day closer. If you can walk in that faith and not waver, I promise you, today you're one day closer. You're going to get there because our God is not a liar. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And as we wrap up, I just want to leave you with a little bit of encouragement. God's word is so powerful that sometimes, and I don't want you to settle on one verse right? I don't want you to be content with just one verse. I want you guys in God's word. I want you reading it. I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. I actually wrote out these little blue cards and on the back they had about 10 or 15 scripture references about promises from scripture and I was going to hand them out this morning but I said, no, Ross, you're not going to do that because I want you guys to go home with that expectation in your heart that the God of the Old Testament is still the exact same God today and I want you to read your Bible with that anticipation knowing that he has a word for you. Get into the word of God for yourself. And sometimes all it takes is one simple verse that can be your anchor through an entire season of storms. For myself, I, I, I want to just share three that have been monumental. First one was Proverbs. Proverbs. 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths or make your paths straight. This one was for me when I was in the heart of my depression. I did not feel like there was a light at the end of the tunnel. I was told I'd never play hockey again. My brain injury was so bad I couldn't go to school. I had to drop out of college. I had zero direction. I had zero path. And I had to just cling to this verse every single day, believing that it was true. And guys, I'm here as a testimony that it is. Jeremiah 29.11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And here's the one. This is the line right here. And if you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you. This was when my depression got so bad I was suicidal and I wanted to end it all. Trust me, I, if there was a person on this planet who questioned if God was real or good or had good in store for people, it wasn't me. I wasn't convinced. But I believed that line. I believed it. I said, I got nothing to lose and everything to gain, so I'm going to seek you with my whole heart. And I'm here today as a testimony that he is a man of his word. And lastly, most recently, Matthew 6.33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and these things shall be added unto you as well. For most of you know by now, I'm not, I don't hide it. I was previously married once before. I was cheated on and my marriage ended. And it was during that season I moved back into my dad's basement and things that I'd worked for for five years were gone. My relationship was gone and I was 30-something years old. And just, I got to tell you, I wanted to figure it all out. 
How do I get this job? How do I get back here? What's my future love life going to look like? What am I going to do, Lord? My mind raced every single night. I had anxiety. I basically felt like I was having a heart attack every night. I, maybe that's why I'm a night hawk, because I hated going to sleep. Because when those lights were off and Ross was left by himself and his thoughts, fear and anxiety ripped through my body until God spoke this verse over me. He said, just focus on me. Focus on becoming the man I'm calling you to be, and I'll take care of the rest. And I'm here this morning, married to a woman I literally never even dreamed existed, as a testimony that God answers his word, and he's true to his promises. So I want to encourage you to go home, get in the Word, read the Bible, search for yourself. He will speak because he's still talking. He's never stopped. Lastly, I just want to give an invitation. If you're here this morning and your life feels untethered, you feel like you're unhooked, maybe you've never experienced what it's like to have Jesus as the anchor of your life, I want to give you that invitation and that opportunity this morning. No matter what storm you're going through, it may not be calmed externally, but he can speak and whisper into the places of your heart and your life where it matters the most. So if you're here this morning or you're watching online, I'm just going to ask everyone, will you bow your heads? Will you close your eyes? We're going to end in prayer. But if that's you, if you're online, you can go to our website. There's an online connect card. Fill it out. Let us know. Say, hey, I am giving my life to Jesus. I'm going to pray with you in a minute. But if you're in here this morning, and you feel untethered and you go, I want to give my life to Jesus. I need an anchor in the storms of life. You can do that. It's so quick. It's so simple. Just put your faith in Jesus. If you want to do that, would you just shoot up your hand quickly this morning? Just put up your hand really quick right where you are. And I want to pray with you. Just this simple prayer. And I believe Jesus can come in and change everything in your life. Online as well. Let's pray. Jesus, I need you. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the grave. I invite you to come into my life. I give you control. Amen. Amen. Our God is not a liar. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for coming this morning. Blessings on you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you this week. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.